Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of our Taking Control of Your Diabetes podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Jeremy Pettis, joined as always by my amazing co-host... Dr. Steve Edelman. Hello, everybody. Good to be here with you, Steve. And today we're joined by two very special guests, uh, two more endocrinologists that work with us at the University of California, San Diego. First, we have Dr. Tricia Santos. Hi, Hi, guys. I always love being here with you. Thanks, Trish. And Dr. Schaefer Bader. Hey, Steve, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. So we just finished one of our virtual conferences. So we're all here in the office. Uh, This was the future of diabetes. We had a great day. A lot of fun talking about you know diabetes stuff and we thought we might as well sit down and do a, a podcast or two so this this episode right now is going to be on kind of top tips for people living with type 1 diabetes and then we're going to do another version of this for guess what people with type 2 diabetes and the idea here is we're all endocrinologists we all kind of specialize in diabetes things that we're always telling our patients with type 1 diabetes or kind of frequent questions that we're getting um, so that we can, uh, you know, address these things to, to help people out there living with type 1. So in order to kind of guide this, guide us through this, I broke this down into several different categories and we'll just go through them in almost kind of a rapid fire way to see what our top endos would say in these different categories. So the first kind of broad topic is, uh, for lack of a better word, diet, you know, nutrition around diabetes. This is something we talk a lot about in type 2, but we have to remember now that most of our type 1s are either overweight or obese. So we have type 1s that are very concerned about what they should be eating, one, because, it, you know, how should they be dosing for insulin, carb counting? And then two, what about, you know, for, for weight loss? So starting, you know, people come in, what diet should I be on? Like, how should I be eating? Trish, you must be asked this all the time. What do you what do you tell people? We are. I think, you know, it's a very common question, like you said. And I think probably the most common response is actually that there is no diabetic diet. Unfortunately, you know, for better or for worse, I think a lot of people kind of want a scripted idea of what they're supposed to eat every day. And there just isn't that. Um, so most of the time I tell people what I hear back from patients, which is, People just with type 1 diabetes, they tend to have an easier time if they eat lower carb. Um, And and I hate telling that to patients sometimes because I don't want them to feel like they can't eat whatever they want. You know, theoretically, you should be able to eat whatever you want and just dose the insulin for it. Um, But it turns out it just makes it harder to control your blood sugar. So generally, I tell people, you know, if you eat lower carb, it just makes it easier. Um, which isn't, you know, the, all that helpful necessarily, but um, I think it, it helps with their blood sugar life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we we're talking about this earlier, kind of what is low carb? And I don't know if there's actually a strict definition, but the way that I always tell people is around 30 grams of carbs or less per meal is something that I would say is low carb. And when you go low carb, it tends to be easier to control your blood sugars, easier to count carbs. I got to admit, I'm awful at counting carbs. And and most people are. It's hard to count carbs. We don't ask non-diabetics to count carbs. But, you know, if I have a couple slices of bread, I can count that. If I have a big old bowl of pasta, I have no idea. So when you go kind of lower carb, it makes it easier to dose insulin and just less like erratic blood sugar. Steve, Schaefer, anything to add? I would just say one thing, you know, we, we obviously we talk about carbs like most of the time when we're talking about type 1 diabetes and the diet and nutrition. But just in general, um, you know, people with type 1 diabetes are also at risk of things like heart disease. And some of the things that also affect our, our people with type 2 diabetes and even those who don't have diabetes, still the number one killer in America is heart disease. So thinking about a, a diet, yes, carbs are super important and you're trying to match up your 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 insulin dosing and, and make your blood sugars better, less glucose variability and all that. 
but also thinking about what's a, what's a healthy diet just to be on in general. So thinking about heart health, something like the Mediterranean diet is, a, is, a, is sort of a, a framework. If you're looking for a diet where there's a lot of good information, books, cookbooks, stuff on the internet where you can kind of, um, you know, use that as, as a structure for your diet. It is actually relatively low in carb to start with, which is helpful. Um, and it's just healthy. It's good for the heart. So that's another kind of way to think about it. Yeah. And I'll say there's only like a couple things that we really tell people with diabetes that they shouldn't have. And that is really kind of really sweetened beverages. You, know, you shouldn't be drinking juice or soda. And like you said, Trish, I hate to tell people they can't be eating things, but that's the one thing I'm hard pressed on. Like yeah. if you're drinking soda or juice, it's just like good luck trying to keep your blood sugars under control. So there's all kinds of diet things. Steve, I know you love your Mio, like something like, you know, kind of low carb or zero carbs to put in your water. Um, anything you want to say about that? Well, you know what? <clears throat> you know, I'm thinking that, you know, everyone's an individual. And I like to tell people you, you should you could eat anything you like as long as you keep your blood sugars in range. You know, and of course, the healthy part too, Schaefer, that you mentioned. So, but it is true that if you can find foods that are lower in carbs, not like the you know, the zealots out there, less than 20 grams a day, you know, which is impossible to do, the Atkins folks, because uh, you can't really maintain that. So you got to find something that you're able to live with, find the foods you like and eat them in moderation. And I'm a big believer in looking at food labels because you'd be surprised certain foods have a ton of calories and a ton of carbs. And of course, always pay attention to the portion size. I love these food labels that say it's only 30 calories a portion, but, you know, <laughs> something the size of half your fist is like five portions, things like that. I, I just think that we cannot be rigid in diabetes and we don't have to be anymore. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the last thing I was going to say about carbs that I, I do tell patients a lot is is that not all carbs are created equal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 30 grams of pasta for you may be very different than 30 grams of oatmeal or 30 grams of rice. Um, and, you know, it's a, we have these kind of carb ratios and things that we try and be rigid about. But the one tip that I always give patients is you got to practice. You got to pay attention to how much insulin you're giving for a particular meal and then see if it worked, you know, and kind of learn how certain foods and carbs affect you. Yeah. And I think for everything that we're talking about, Steve and I, we did two different challenges. First, we did the three donut challenge where we both ate three donuts. We got them from VG's up the street. They were delicious. We had to eat them within 15 minutes and try to stay in range. And the reason we did that was to kind of quote unquote prove that you can eat these like kind of semi-ridiculous things and stay in range. Not that you should, anybody should be doing this like, you know, on a regular basis, but how you can, you know, troubleshoot even something that seems kind of absurd as, as three donuts. So we did that video for that reason. And then we did the pizza challenge which was three pieces of pizza. Again, in 15 minutes, I think I was starving that day. I remember it was so good. Round table. Um, and the reason we did that one was because, yes, there's carbs in pizza, but there's protein and fat. And that's something that comes up all the time. How do I bolus for, you know, these, these high fat, high protein meals? So you can watch both those videos on our video vault on tcod.org. And in that one, we talk about the different strategies for dealing with fat and protein, which is something that can drive people insane you know, I counted my carbs, like, you know, what's going on? Well, when you eat fat and protein, it makes you more insulin resistant. It delays the absorption of food. So you need more insulin and you need it over a longer period of time. And these are things that like when people hear for the first time, they'll be like, oh my gosh, I never knew that. No wonder why when I eat a steak that's zero carbs, you know, all of a sudden at, you know, midnight, my blood sugars are going up. It's because that protein still turns into to glucose. So if you're out there struggling with, you know, trying to get your insulin dosing right and you're doing your best counting carbs, 
there's all these variables, you know, how much protein, how much fat, how stressed you are, how much exercise you've had, you know, um, if you drink alcohol, when you last slept, like all those things that can make this difficult. Yeah. The other challenge we had, which, which relates to this topic is our alcohol challenge. Jeremy was drinking IPA with a ton of calories. I was drinking old fashions with mostly hard alcohol bourbon. And we, we documented what happens when you have three double old fashions or three 18 ounce Pliny the Elders in 45 minutes, besides not being able to walk. (laughs) That was my favorite challenge. I was just going to say that was one of my favorites. And, you know, just going back to the tips, the one tip about alcohol, um, and I, I would encourage everybody to watch that video, but it's so important. I do have a lot of younger patients who are in the kind of college age group. Um, and it's so important to talk to your provider to get educated about how alcohol affects your diabetes because it is complex. Um, you know, I would say go watch that video, but make sure that the people around you know when you're having alcohol so they can help you if you're low um, or, or help recognize that you're low and not drunk. I mean, frankly, right? Totally. So it's just an important conversation. Well, in that it was a good video because like, you know, people make blanket statements, alcohol raises your blood sugar, lowers your blood sugars. Depends on what you're drinking. That's why we did beer versus hard alcohol. At the end of it, I lost my shirt. And to this, <laughs> this day, we still don't know where my shirt That's is. That's true. Yeah. That's true. So um, <laughs> if you want to see a shirtless Jeremy with a cowboy hat on for some reason, uh, definitely check that out. Highly professional. But, but let, me, <laughs> let me say one last thing is that Everything we're talking about here, all the variables about the types of food we eat, the amounts, is it you cannot really control your diabetes without a CGM because yeah. that is so inherently uh, important to keeping you in range, especially, it doesn't matter, especially, I was about to especially with pizza, but especially with everything. Yeah. Well, let's move on to a like, different broad topic that's still kind of in this lifestyle area, which is, sorry, exercise. Um, <clears throat> and exercise we were talking about is, is hugely important. We know it's, it's great for your overall, you know, weight and cardiovascular health and just feeling better, sleeping better. All like the, the benefits are numerous. However, it is probably the thing, you know, and correct me if you agree with this, Steve, that I struggled the most with potentially with controlling my blood sugars, um, during exercise and after exercise, it can be a real curveball. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. And you know, I've heard you say it, it's complicated. Yeah. And like, if you talk to Schaefer, who's kind of specializes in exercise and type twos, it's much easier. Uh, but with type ones where we have our own level of insulin, we have to worry about what we do before exercise. And if you don't make accommodations for reducing your insulin pump basal rate or getting your blood sugar to a level that you're not going to get low during exercise. And then depending on the intensity of the exercise, are you going to, are you going to do a warm down? Are you going to worry about rebounding high afterwards? So there's so many hormones that are interacting here. You have the anti-insulin hormones like adrenaline that comes up when you exercise. Then you got insulin that lowers your blood sugar. You got, when's the last time you gave yourself a bolus? it was 30 minutes before exercise, good luck, not getting low. And so, you know, it is one of the hardest things we deal with in having type one. Type two is much easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it's, I don't know, you can add to that. Uh, yeah, Trisha, Schaefer, what do you think? Like tips, I, baby, I mean, for yeah, people that I think are- some actionable tips, um, really, ultimately, so, okay, so there are some types of exercise that can make your blood sugar go up. And that is probably extra- Confusing, you know, but lifting weights, high intensity, um, aerobic exercise, those sorts of things are more likely to actually make your blood sugar go up. But I think, you know, the the more common 
issue and probably the one of more concern because it can be dangerous is a low blood sugar. So let's, if we focus on that, um, you know, a lot of, you know, if you're going out walking or jogging or longer duration exercise, all of those can lead to low, low blood sugars because you're using up all that glucose, your muscles are soaking it up. And your insulin resistance at that same time is actually de is improving. So the insulin resistance is decreasing. And so you're, 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 you're needing less insulin to get the job done and you're using up the sugar. So really going into exercise, it takes planning. I mean, that's kind of the takeaway. A CGM is a hugely important tool. Um, but also if you're, you know, if you're planning on exercising, it really is take some planning. So, you know, going into, if you're going to bolus for a meal within those couple hours before your exercise, it's a good idea to cut your bolus down so you can give less insulin for that meal beforehand. If you are using a pump, so if you're not injecting basal insulin, so if you have a pump, you're getting your basal insulin there. It's a good idea to actually decrease your, your basal insulin rate by, you know, this varies person to person, but probably 30 to 50%. Um, sometime before the exercise starts. And that's so important. Yeah. An hour or two. Probably about an, at least an hour before. And, and a lot of patients will say, well, I did it right when I started and I still went low. Yeah. And it's that's kind of too time. late. So to, to get your less insulin in your body even before you start the exercise, I guess is the, is the takeaway. Schaefer, yeah. it, it also depends on the type of exercise. I mean, totally. you know, so, you know, it, it's complicated, but you're right. If, if you're someone that needs to lower their insulin you got to do at least an hour before and i i just spoke to earl hirsch in one of our lectures and he he recommends two hours before yeah. but then the issue is then the exercise delayed or you're giving less insulin for a bolus and then you have to live with yeah. a high blood sugar there's it's nothing freaking pain worse than that like preparing for exercise letting your blood sugar go high like 200 and then like you can't exercise and then you're just upset that you're high but guess what everybody Steve and I did a challenge on this. Um, <laughs> it's on our website. It's on our website where we exercise for 45 minutes. I did a Peloton, kind of a high-intensity uh, cardiovascular workout, and Steve uh, walked on a treadmill at a, a steep gradient, so more of kind of a consistent, um, like I don't know, uh, exercise. And we talk about how to plan before, what to you know do during, and then what to do after. So some quick tips. Uh, first of all, the timing of exercise matters a lot. You tend to be more insulin resistant in the morning and more insulin sensitive at night. So it's much more difficult to go low in the morning if you exercise. So that's one. If you are going to lift weights and do cardiovascular, it's better to lift weights first and then do the cardiovascular second because the weightlifting, as Schaefer mentioned, can kind of raise your blood sugars a little bit and protect you from a low um, during the cardiovascular part. Um, Next would be to actually reduce your basal, if you can, with a pump an hour or two before. Some kind of reduction in insulin before you exercise. And then finally, a hugely important one uh, to avoid a post-exercise like spike is actually do a cool down. A 10 to 20 minute kind of uh, cool down so that this allows your, your adrenaline to kind of relax. You're not just trying to like mobilize glucose. So if you're running, walk the last mile. If you're you know, on a bike, 10, 15 minutes of kind of just like a, a cool down can be really helpful. What if you're on basal insulin like 2JO, Torceba, and you can't reduce that dose? Well, you're, just, you're is screwed. the alternative just... <laughs> Eat, eat then you have to eat some carbs. You know, another kind of rule of thumb is 15 grams of carbs every, you know, 30 minutes or so if you're doing kind of a sustained exercise. And that's where, I mean, a CGM is just essential. I mean, because otherwise you can take you can take those carbs at the start of your exercise, but unless you're going to stop every 15 minutes in the middle of your exercise and poke your finger, which you can do for sure. In some cases, maybe that's wise. But if you have a CGM, you can really see if that if that's working. And if you need to redose, take some more, you know, glucose tablets or whatever you're using for your carb, you know, and then, then do it. You know, so, the last thing I'll say on this um, exercise tips is that 
we do have a lot of patients now on hybrid closed loops. Um, and these tend to have an exercise mode or an activity mode that is supposed to deliver less insulin when you're exercising. It turns out that in, in my experience with my patients, people are still getting low <laughs> with the mm -hmm. activity mode or the exercise mode. And so one tip that I do tell patients to do is if they're going to exercise, for example, if they're using a tandem control IQ, um, hybrid closed loop, if they're going to exercise, I have them put it in activity mode, but I also tell them to set a second basal profile um, that is maybe a 50% reduction, like you mentioned, Schaefer. Um, so they're getting both. They're actually getting less basal delivered, and then they're in that activity mode that's going to target a higher blood sugar as well. Um, because the, the exercise or activity mode alone doesn't seem to be doing the trick. You know, I think um, this is just reminds me as we're talking about all these things, like all the things that people with type 1 diabetes have to think about. I mean, we're just talking about going for a run for crying out loud or something. And it's just like, I got to think about what I'm eating, like what I'm doing, like, you know, my modes, like all these things. Like, so uh, it always reminds me to tell people, if you're out there frustrated with like blood sugars, it doesn't always go the way that you want it to go. You know, that's so common. And Steve and I, like the, another great part about this exercise video we did is that both of us didn't really do a great job. I think you might've went low and I went high, like, you know, like it didn't go particularly well. And we're armed with all these tools and, you know, education about this. So you, you educate yourself, you try to incorporate some of these tips and you try to keep yourself in a safe range. And if it doesn't go perfect, you try again the next time. Yeah. You, you started off high yeah. and ended up low and I had to eat that sandwich ahead of time. And then I just rebounded high <laughs> and we just totally messed up. And I think the most common uh, comment on, on the blog was you guys are normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, cause who wants to see us do well really? So anyways, um, so I think we were kind of bouncing around this topic a little bit about just tech in general. We've talked about CGM, hybrid closed loop. Um, I, I don't know, maybe Steve or Schaefer, like anybody who wants to jump in and just kind of general approaches to technology in type 1 diabetes and how that might change with patients you see today versus, let's say, even three years ago. Well, I, I can start off <clears throat> and you can you guys can all jump in there. Well, you know, all four of us see, see people in clinic. And I think we all would agree that hybrid closed loop systems have changed the way we treat patients with type one diabetes, that they have made life so much better for people. And, 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 and then it makes it better for us in clinic too, because I'll tell you what, I mean, these systems, if you're not familiar with them, there's four on the market. Now there's the, the Medtronic system, the Omnipod five, the tandem control IQ, <clears throat> and then the, the looping that people do. And there's a lot of stuff on our website. And I just gave a good lecture with Earl Hirsch, who, who's an expert in that as well. <clears throat> and these systems in general, you know, have their insulin pump communicate with a continuous glucose monitor. Um, they all have what we call modulating basal rate. So these systems work on the predicted blood sugar uh, 30 and 60 minutes into the future. And they will give you more insulin as your blood sugars go up and less insulin as it drops and even turn off your insulin if it predicts you're going to hit your low. So um, it really protects people uh, against extreme hyper and hypoglycemia. And if you're eating a relatively low-carb low, low carb diet, you, you might be able to go through the whole day without ever bolusing for a meal. Um, and your blood sugar is in range, this uh, range that we'll talk about, the 70 to 80 milligrams, 70 to 180 milligrams per deciliter. And, you know, all systems are a little different, can't get into the details now, but um, a lot, some people are hesitant and they say, I don't want to give up control. 
And the minute they give up control, the system does much better than they do. Tremendous control at night because people are typically not eating at night. Uh, and so the time and range has gone up. The time below range goes down. The average glucose goes down, which equates to the estimated A1C. And the more time you are in range, the less variable your blood sugars are. So <clears throat> I'll, I'll say right here on this podcast and someone do a timestamp that um, this is the standard of care for people with type 1. Uh, and it, it's the way we're going. And I think, Schaefer, um, you mentioned, I've heard you mention, talk about completely closed-loop systems that are meant more for uh, folks that may be not on one of these systems now. But why don't you talk about that and anything else you want to add? Yeah. Like the beta bionics. Yeah, the beta bionics system. I mean, I think that companies currently, so, you know, Steve talked about what we have available right now and some pretty good options. And I think... You know, first of all, just one sort of thought on like, how do you choose which one to use? Because that can be overwhelming. And sometimes it's just whichever one your provider is most comfortable with, which is maybe not necessarily the best one for you. So if you're if you're not on an insulin pump or a hybrid closed loop system, but you're thinking about it, definitely do some research and, and you know, read about all these different options. And, and, you know, the actual blood sugar control is very similar across them. So it's more like the other details, like, does it have a tube? You know, what different settings can you use on it? And those sorts of things that can really make it right for you or better than the other pumps. Um, so that's one thing. That's what we have currently. Down the pipeline, um, and, and very soon down the pipeline, as in we're doing research on it currently in people and moving towards approval for some of these, are, are even more, we're moving more towards a fully closed loop system. So again, the hybrid closed loop system is means you still have to put in your, you know, the carbs you're eating and, and that sort of thing for boluses. And ultimately, the goal for some, for many people is a fully closed loop system that you just don't have to do anything. You literally put it on and the CGM and the algorithm and the, and the pump does all the work after that. So you could sit down and eat a meal and, um, and, and not even have to count the carbs and the pump just reacts to that and, and acts as if it was your pancreas. So we are moving in that direction for sure. And the beta bionics uh, pump is sort of the next step, I think, in that direction where it almost gets there. You just announce your meal. You say, I'm going to eat a meal. And you can say this is a normal size meal or a little bit smaller, a little bit larger meal. But really, you just say you're having a meal and it takes, does it from there. And I think that's an important thing to clarify that when you say having a meal, it's not how many carbs, it's just I'm eating. Yeah, you literally period. just open it up and push the button. You know, like, so very conceptual rather than I'm eating, you know, 72.3 grams of carbs, yeah. you know, which is nice. Yeah. And I think, again, this is a this is a system that will really be great for many, many people out there, especially people that aren't currently using pumps or closed loop systems that maybe want to, that, that have been waiting for something that makes our life easier and takes a lot of that sort of like burden of carb counting and all this stuff away. I think it's, you know, other people want a little bit more precise control and they, and they may like some of the, you know, currently available systems where you can tweak some of that stuff or even, you know, the looping, which is another system. But. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to say about beta bionics is we just, we mentioned this, <clears throat> this conference we just did and people are like, well, I've been hearing about this since 2008. Like, and yeah. it's always like right around the corner, what's going on. And it actually is right around the corner now. You know, we just finished this very large study in it and it'll probably hopefully be kind of available in the next, I would say two years max. So, I agree. I've been hearing about this for a long time. And when I first heard about it, I don't know, in 2008 or whatever, it was revolutionary. You know, like, how can you have a system that completely controls blood sugars? You don't have to, you know, do anything else. And the good news is the rest of the world's caught up a bit that these other systems are all great options. So I think by the time it's here, it's not going to be the end all be all, which I think is actually good news. It's just going to be another option that, that, that people can uh, try. 
And just to be specific in these clinical trials that they just released some of the, the data on, the ADA, et cetera, that they had people that were randomized to being on the, the beta bionic system versus being on a CGM with their other therapy. And that other therapy could be, they could still be on shots, they could be on a hybrid closed loop. And in general, the, the beta bionics device improved people's A1C by about half a percent. So, you know, from eight to seven and a half or seven and a half to seven, improved their time and range by about 10%. So they went from 70 to 80 or whatever. And there was no increase in hypoglycemia. So I think that's the, the kind of results we're seeing with these clinical trials in all these different systems, better glucose control with at least no worsening in hypoglycemia and, and, and usually actually less hypoglycemia and ultimately less work for people. Because that's what we ultimately all want is better results with less mental effort. And we're getting there. So, yeah, you know, choices. And I just want to emphasize something you said, Schaefer, is uh, you need to do your own investigation because I have my own biases. You know, your physician may have his or her own biases. You, You know, you need to figure out what system works best for you. And that's that's extremely important. We have so many good choices now, too. One thing I'll say about biases is that with these systems, you know, for years and years and years, my spiel has always been, if you have type 1 diabetes, I will do whatever works best for you. So if you want to be on injections because you like that better, we'll do injections. If you want to be on a pump because you like that better, we'll do a pump. And these systems have really changed the way I think about that now. So now I, I truly am pushing people to try and get them on one of these systems. And that's because what I'm seeing when patients come back in the clinic is that what these systems are able to do, we as humans are not able to do. So just having perfect blood sugars every night, overnight, it's just impossible with trying to do with one injection of basal insulin. So as a as a doctor, I've really shifted how I'm thinking for my type ones. Absolutely. And I think I totally agree with you. And I know we all do. Um, so we have a couple minutes left and maybe just kind of switching to general insulin dosing or just general tips that people want to kind of like say, and I'll start, and I know you guys all use this tip too, that I'm talking about with every single patient. And it sounds simple, but there's really two parts of this. One, you have to bolus every time you eat. And that sounds really simple, but if you're on one of these systems and you take some insulin before you eat, you're going to do well. People get in trouble, and this is the most common pattern I see in type 1 diabetes, where they say, well, I don't want to go low, so I'm not going to bolus before I eat. And then they go high and they react to that high blood sugar by taking, you know, a big bolus, what we call a rage bolus. And then they go low and you have to eat everything in the fridge because you're low. And then you rebound high and you get on this kind of roller coaster. And the way to actually avoid those lows is take more insulin before you eat. So it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but the best way to avoid a low is to avoid that first high in the first place. So if you just take insulin before each meal, it's honestly less important about getting the carb dosing exactly right and by say before each meal, this is the second part, pre-bolusing 10 to 20 minutes before you eat, ideally get something on board. And if you can really kind of kind of shift your um, approach to type 1 diabetes to being more proactive, I'm taking insulin before I eat, um, you'll do so much better than this reactive, I go high, I bolus, I go low, I eat kind of thing. I think there's two more topics we should cover. Um, one is how to react to the trend arrows. When you're, when you're just correcting your blood sugar or about to eat and your blood sugar is going up or down. And two, where to set your alerts and alarms. Those are really good tips. I can cover the alerts okay? because I know you guys have heard this, but uh, bear with me. This is Steve's new spiel. Oh, yeah. It really works. Okay. We, we usually tell our patients, you know, most of them set your lower alert at, 
you know, 70 to 80 and you're upper at 180. That's kind of like the range we want you in, right? Um, and it dawned on me one day, why should I have my upper alert at 180? When it, I hit it, I'm already out of range. And I was in, in fierce competition with Pettis on improving the time and range. And I moved it to 150. Now, I just want to say this up, up front. People always freak out. They go, oh, my God. You know, I don't want this thing bugging me to death. So I, I tell them, you have to change your attitude. You could have two sets of alerts with the Dexcom. Uh, you can have the nighttime alerts and set it higher. But during the day, <clears throat> set it to change the sound so it's not that factory eh, eh, one that I hate. It's like a doorbell. I have I have the nerd alert one. Yeah, you never hear it, but I hear it. And I have to kind of nudge you. Well, it's, it's high frequency. I don't hear it. So, <laughs> so when it goes off, I instead of saying "damn it," I say "yes," and I'm either I'm like right around 150, and I then I just look at the trend arrow, and I give myself a correction if I need it. If it's straight across, I might do nothing, and if it's on the way down, I doubt I'm, but I'll I'll follow it. Yeah. I was just going to say that jives really well with my being proactive thing. So instead of being 180 and reacting at 150, you can kind of tackle it. Yeah, and yeah. you did it yourself, uh, and you lowered yours to 160. Mm-hmm. I'm not and, there yet to 150, but that's my next step. But I'll, I'll tell you what. I mean, it's one thing that most of my patients have come back and said, that really worked. It'll raise your time and range 10% solely by adjusting your upper alert. But you have to, you know... Say to yourself, okay, because we all hate those alerts and alarms. They're your friends. And uh, just change the one to a nicer sound, make it lower. And then for my other little tip is that I, for me personally, I do still carry the little uh, reader that you get with a Dexcom because I use it when I ride my bike. If I'm in a meeting, I don't like to pull out my phone. And I have this one, my reader, set at 180. So it's kind of like, um, you know, you can do a repeat high with your 150, but you can also have a second one that I used just in case I missed the first one. But I can just tell you, it I love having it at 150 during the day. And at night, because I'm on a hybrid closed loop, I don't even have, I rarely have high blood sugars at night. So it doesn't even matter. My last parting comment would be this. Just give yourself a break, I mm-hmm. think, because I, I do see patients stress out quite a bit about their diabetes. And, you know, stress doesn't help your diabetes. And I think... Type one is really hard. I mean, we've talked about all the decisions that you have to make on a daily basis, multiple times a day. And I think, you know, people need to understand it's okay if if your blood sugars aren't perfect all the time. Um, It's okay if you're having a few bad weeks or a bad month, you know, we will get back on track. But, you know, overall, give yourself a break. It's a hard job. And I think the fact that people are here listening and trying to learn about it, you know, they should be commended for that. Absolutely. Thanks. I honestly think we should end on that. Okay. <laughs> I think we should too. So <laughs> Shaper, we can cut you off. And trend arrows are important. Stay tuned for more on that in our next <laughs> podcast. Um, but you guys, this has been really fun. And thanks for everybody for doing this. And stay tuned for our one on type 2 diabetes. So thanks again for listening and uh, have a great day.